Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, well, let's, let's, uh, let's take a poll. Let's see which brave soul wants to define love. Anybody want to offer? What are you, where are you coming to? What are you, what are you thinking? What are you saying when you say love? Let's pretend somebody already went. Okay, go ahead. Uh, affection that uh, supersedes aff- condition. Affection that supersedes condition. Oh, just made me all a flutter. Oh, my gosh. Oh, he's already taken. Sorry. Well, polyamory's coming back, apparently, so just kidding. I don't have the capacity for that. Who else? Love. What is love? I knew it. I kept reframing it so that wouldn't happen. What are we talking about? Okay. So it's like there's a whole full spectrum of experience, emotion. Absolutely. What else? Compromise and listening. Wow. Someone's been taking classes. A natural desire to extend more of yourself towards the other person. That's good. Creating a safe space. That's good. Anybody else? We'll take one more, maybe. Okay. No, I think that's, I think that's good. Well, you guys pretty much have it. So um, wrapping up. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> it, it is very hard to define. There's a lot of ways that we move around it. You know, you hear words enter into the conversation of love, kind of like affection, um, sacrifice. What's the difference between love and infatuation? What is love? What does it mean to be in love? There are different kinds of love. Like, what, how do we get to the foundation? And so this is kind of where I'm at right now in my journey of discovering what love is. Love is... The choice to commit to see the wholeness of the beloved restored over time. Be still my heart. Oh my gosh. That's a Valentine's card right there. Love is the choice. So what do we, I'm going to break this down. Love is the choice. Okay, number one, love is a choice. Okay? Love does not come naturally, and we're going to be talking about that a lot today. It is the choice to commit. Okay? Love has some sort of uh, a covenant to it. Uh, to see the wholeness of the beloved. I had, I had worked, that phrase was, I was working around that one a whole lot. We were talking about well-being and whatnot. And I was bouncing it off my atheist Beth's friend to see what he thought. And I felt like wholeness is pretty good because we live in a world where we're kind of shattered apart. And that's kind of what we call evil, right? When we're broken into pieces as human beings. And it's love is something about gathering up those pieces and being restored. And then the beloved, that there's, there's, a, there's a, someone who is receiving that love uh, and restored over time. And I think the time part is very important. And I, I like this definition uh, because I think it covers all manners of love. Many of you might be familiar with C.S. Lewis's work called The Four Loves, where he, he says there's essentially four kinds of love. Number one, there's affection or empathy. Um, and this is the kind of love that you might have like in a parent-child relationship or where you just have a general affection for things. I was thinking last week Jenna uh, came over to, to visit with me at my house and, and their just now three-year-old Pax is walking around my house and he's maybe the sweetest child on the planet. Okay, so Jenna and I, we're talking, we're having heart-to-heart conversation. He'd come up to me and go, oh, wow, Pastor Ryan, I love this remote. <laughs> and then he'd hand it to me and then he'd go, 
he walk over to my dad's glasses. He'd go, oh, I love these glasses. And then he grabs like another glasses case because my dad's old and there's like glasses in every room, you know, and then all the accoutrements. And he goes, wow, I have never seen this before. <laughs> and then he's like staring out the window and he goes, oh, interesting. Isn't that what he said? Like, and it's funny because you're like, you don't know what love is, kid. But like there's a... There's, a, there's an affection this child walks around the world just generally affecting. He's being affected by things, and I love that. And that's, so that's one of the loves. Another love is friendship. Um, that friendship is, I think, um, one of the most, I, I think, actually misunderstood forms of love. Um, and it's pro- C.S. Lewis says it's probably because it's the one that we don't technically need to survive of all the different kinds of love, but it might be what's most important for us to grow as human beings. And then there's eros love, and this is romantic love. We think about erotic, eros love, so that's the particular kind of romantic love that you would have for a partner. And then there's agape love, which is considered the unconditional love or the love um, that comes from God, okay? Um, and so all of these different forms of love, what are we talking about? What's the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing? And I think it's love is the choice to commit to seeing the wholeness of the beloved restored over time. And I think that that's why then love is a virtue, that we've been talking about this a lot in this series, that love is a virtue because it's a conscious choice to grow in something. And so What we've been talking about a lot with this idea of virtue is these virtues, they have a source, they have an origin point that we see in the heart of God, and they also have a destination that as we're watching history unfold, as God continues to reveal God's self to humanity, to move in and through us, and to restore the belovedness of creation over time, that we see that we have this destination. We know where it is that we're headed, and the virtues position us in the moment today to go, okay, what's our role in the whole storyline today? And I think then that very interestingly um, kind of posits us towards the, the vice that corresponds with virtue, which is lust. Now, we often think of lust being a sexual thing, which, which it is, and that's very true. But I think there's a deeper, more profound way of seeing lust in the same way there's a deeper, more profound way of seeing love. That lust is the objectification of other people for our personal consumption. Okay, It's when we actually devalue other people and we gobble them up in order to build up our own egos. So that can come in the form of sex. You know, the most obvious would be like pornography is when you're devaluing or objectifying another person um, and then you're gobbling them up for your own edification of your ego. It happens in our relationships all the time where we have maybe not a sexual lust in our relationships and our friendships and our romance or whatever, but where we use people as props, where we dehumanize people and they become accessories to our life. That's what lust is. And that's oftentimes where our culture confuses things because we're so run by our feelings today. So time for a history lesson. You're welcome. Um, so there was the Enlightenment period, and you know, everybody agreed, oh, this is probably a pretty good way to kind of do things. Reason and logic will get us this like farther into understanding what truth is. <clears throat> And then the pendulum dramatically swung the other direction, and then it was the Romantic era. This is kind of the late 1700s, 1800s, all right? And there was an honest attempt to reclaim what the Enlightenment lost, which was the place of the heart, the emotions. And you saw it a lot in romantic painting, you saw it a lot in in writing and and books, and there was a a decent amount of philosophers that were working around it. And then romanticism kind of took over. The pendulum just totally swung. It was all about heart space. And then came 
kind of the almost a caricature of romanticism, which is what we're living in now, which is called emotivism, which is, I feel, therefore I am. Okay, so the Enlightenment kind of begins with Rene Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, which is positioning myself and my own capacity to reason at the center of my understanding of the universe. And now we're at, I feel, therefore I am. So whatever I'm feeling now is true, and that's the lens through which I read the rest of the world. Now, there's many problems with our... And our heritage from Romanticism that put us in the position we are today, why so many of us have been ruined for love, why we see broken relationships all around us. And here's a couple of those things. Number one, Romanticism taught us to believe in spontaneity, okay? The idea of love at first sight, that, or love as kind of intuition. You know, you're at the laundromat one day, you're folding your tidy whities You know you're looking good. You look across and you spy this gorgeous blonde woman. All of a sudden, the, sun, the clouds part, and it's just like, she's the one. That's it. I'm in love. Okay? That's a romantic notion, this idea of spontaneity. Like, we just kind of fall into love. Love just kind of happens to us. Number two, we believe in the angelic perfection of people. So we were coming out of a very rough period in Christianity where we probably overplayed our hand with how evil humanity was. Whoops. And it's just like at the base level, everybody's disgusting and horrible and who among us is righteous and blah, 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 all that kind of like reformation stuff. And the romantics are like, no, people are inherently good, which I think that we've talked about it a lot here before. I think there's actually a, a really complex balance between those two. But it, it got to this place of like human beings at their core are angelic and are perfect and just lovely. And then you get to know some human beings, and it just, you can't get that to fit with this idea that, no, you're, you're perfect just the way you are. We keep telling each other that when we're in love, right? And then it's like, but I also kind of don't like the way you are sometimes. So we keep fighting this idea to say, no, 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 you're inherently perfect. There's nothing wrong with you. And two things happen. We refuse to accept our own imperfections, and then we're shocked when people that say that they love us disappoint us. Number three, we're told in Romanticism that you're supposed to just be yourself. Be true to yourself, okay? So that's a common thing people say today. Be true to yourself. Be true to your feelings. Um, if any of you have ever been in love, you also know it's probably a bad idea for you to be true to yourself. Because when you're true to yourself, you take up all the space. Because you're just being guided by being true to yourself, and, and people have to get out of like get out of your way, or you have to be true to your feelings. You have to do whatever it is that you feel is right or is good, which really I think is where lust often comes from. Is that we're we're pursuing what we're feeling in the moment is the right thing. Why would I deny myself anything? I deserve these things. I deserve to be happy. I deserve uh, pleasure or whatever it might be, and I'm going to be true to my feelings. And that's often where we end up hurting other people. And any of you that are in a loving relationship know that part of love is that you actually need to hold back and you need to accommodate. You maybe need, even need to edit yourself and your feelings and your needs in order to love another person. Number four, I love this one. L when you're in love, it means you don't have to explain yourself, right? So we remember we, we have those days and it's just like, oh my gosh, there was this moment we're just like on the beach and it's like we didn't have to say anything. You know what I mean? We just like, we just, it was just, an, there was an understanding. That's how I knew. And this is why there's an epidemic of sulking in our culture. Because you're at a party, 
something happens, and you get in the car with your beloved, and it's kind of weird, and you're like, hey, is everything okay? Mm, it's fine. No, no, seriously, like, what's going on? Mm, that's fine. I'm all right. All right. And then you get home, and all of a sudden, your beloved locks themselves in, their, in the bathroom, and you're like, do we want to talk about? Well, if you just, if you loved me, you would just know, right? How often do we do this? If you, if you really loved me, you would just know what I'm thinking. Why do I have, like, I shouldn't have to tell you, you say that you love me. Ironically, we don't even know what we're thinking, let alone expecting our beloved to. And so we have this idea that love, we've achieved love when we no longer have to explain ourselves or we no longer have to be curious about our beloved. So the work then becomes the opposite of love. And then finally, I think that leads to the last thing, that criticism is, is opposite of love. To criticize somebody is to not love them. And this is, I think, an absolute epidemic in our culture today, okay? If you do not accept me for everything that I say that I am and everything that I believe and everything I do, you do not love me. Can I get anybody to testify on that one? That's where we're at today. To love me means that you have to accept all of me and you cannot critique me, you cannot say anything critical, because we believe, because of romanticism, that there should be no suffering in the world. There should be no suffering in loving relationship. And this ironically comes because most of those early romantic writers didn't have any jobs and they died early. So why would they, suffering was kind of this, this whole other thing, but we, we have this idea that to love someone is to accept all of who they are with no expectation for change, and there should not be any suffering. So anytime that I'm caused to suffer in my relationships, it must not be a loving relationship. So romanticism has ruined us for love in any of those kinds of relationships, for general affection, for friendships, for romantic affection, and oftentimes our perspective of our love of God and with God and for God. So how do we rebuild a Christian vision of what love is. What do we mean when we say love? And I'm really excited. I, was, I, I say this all the time. Like I get excited about the sermons that I'm preaching or whatever. I'm really excited about this one. I was like giddy all week and I couldn't wait. I'm like, Jenna, hurry up and finish worship. Nobody cares. Let's I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> I want to get up there. Everybody cares. Everybody loves you. I mean, they're working on it. You know, you have some... Admiral qualities. One of, at least one of us is making covenant with you. That's all you need. <laughs> um, so we're, this is where we're going to go with like how do, we, how do we build that foundation of what we mean when we say love. I believe that love is home base for all of creation, ourselves included. So this idea continually that we've talked about with virtue is that we have a, we have a source, we have an origin and we also have this destination, and virtue posits us in the middle to know where we've come from and where we're going. And a lot of us are, believe, are raised to believe within the Christian household that this is actually a foreign, that love is a foreign concept to us. I'll, I'll reframe it this way. A lot of times when we talk about the human story, um, a lot of Christians start in Genesis 3 with the fall of humanity and not in Genesis 1. Okay? So if you start the story with what it means to be human with and this is even, it's like in that, what is it called? Like the four laws or whatever, when we used to try to convince people to be Christians through reason and logic. That worked great. Um, but it's like, you know, uh, all people have sinned, right? We start there. That's the story. 
All people have sinned. So what happens there is you get this doctrine of original sin that St. Augustine, who we just celebrated yesterday, he posits this idea in the fourth century um, of original sin. And then as we do as Christians, we just took it like a football and we're like, let's go. And we just like put that at the core of humanity. Genesis 3, we're fallen, we're broken creatures, we're unlovable. And I think that's really poisonous to us when we try to understand love because what that means is eventually we just go, oh, like love is this foreign concept. Like it's just so much outside of our nature, and I actually think that it's woven into the deepest essence of what it means to be a human being, indeed what it means to be part of God's good creation. So we're going to, I'm going to read the entire uh, poem of Genesis 1 to you, maybe some of you are wondering if we were going to have any Bible in this one, we'll have lots of Bible, and I'm going to show you kind of three points that, that, that give us this grounding for love from the foundations of the world, Okay. And so as I'm, I'm going I'm to read a little piece, and then I'm going to talk about it, and we'll continue on. Um, so this is Genesis 1, 1 through 2. And this is actually where the pre-Adamite civilization stuff comes from, you can, if you want to go into that. It's fun. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the next verse says, and God said, let there be light. Now, a lot of times as Christians, we believe God is a trinity, okay? That there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's all of these neat little places that you can go in the Old Testament to kind of show this because in Jewish theology, God is one and only one. In Christianity, you say God is one, but also three. It's terribly confusing, but it's really beautiful. And, you know, sometimes people will look at Genesis 1 and say, oh, it's the let us make uh, in our image, like God speaks in the plural. That's actually a Jewish uh, narrative device, but we see it here, okay? So we've got, in the beginning, God created, there was darkness, the Spirit of God hovers over the water, and then God speaks. So we have God the Father, the origin of all. We have God the Spirit hovering over the water. I love the word for hovering is like brooding like a bird, you know, and like later on we see this dove as the image of the Holy Spirit, and then God speaks. So the Word of God goes forth and brings something where there was nothing. So there's our Trinitarian God right in the beginning. And a lot of times we, we treat the Trinity as if it's some sort of mathematical equation we've got to figure out. Like we've got to take trigonometry in order to understand it. And people just go, oh, that Trinity thing, like it doesn't seem useful or I don't really get it. But I think that the Trinity is actually beautiful and it's integral to us understanding love because we become like what we worship. And if God is our source, we better understand what God is like. And what we realize here in the very beginning is that God is a loving community creating out of joyful abundance. If God was one and only one, God is selfish, God is petulant, God is needy. We don't really know his motivations for creating. But if God is three in one, God is actually this circuit of love, other-centered and other-focused. And there's this constant conversation within the Trinity, this loving community. I love, I've shown you that, guys, that, that, um, <coughs> excuse me, that icon before of the three visitors uh, visiting Abraham. And I love that, that image of God where it's like these three people are sitting around a table. And it's like they're kind of deferring to one another. They kind of like they're bowing to one another. And there's just, there's just this deep respect and honor and affection that's present in that icon. And I, I think that, that at the core, that is what God is actually like. God is love. God is this loving community. In order to love, there has to be another. And if none of us existed and it was God and only God, then God had to love God. 
but not in a selfish way, in this other-centered, other-focused way. And so when God creates, God doesn't create necessarily out of necessity or selfish reasons. God creates out of the joyful abundance of love. A friend of mine said to me so wisely, they're talking about having kids in marriage. He said, we want to have as many kids as our marriage can handle. I thought that was such a better model than going, oh, we want two kids, we want five kids, we want 16 kids, you know? Like to actually say, uh, the result, the fruit of our covenant is determined in what we can create because we want to create out of joy. Now, this was completely opposite of all of the other creation narratives in, the, in Mesopotamia at the time. Like there was all these other, um, you know, uh, communities and, and civilizations and the Persians, the Mesopotamians, Babylonians, the Egyptians, and so on. And everybody else's creation narrative was, creation was inherently a bad idea. Like one God punched another God. And there's like literally one where it's like this, these two gods were fighting and one God like took another God and like broke him over his knee and then reached into his bowels and ripped the world out. Now, if that's your origin story, like what is your day? Yeah, how do you schedule your day around that? You're like, all of this just came out of the guts of two gods fighting? Like that sucks. So everything's inherently just kind of like broken and, and, and evil. And I got to just get what I can out of life. But if your origin story is like, no, God, there was so much love that there was an abundance of joy and God created out of that, well, how does that change how I understand everything, like the creation of the world? And how does that change how I understand myself? And then we get into the next piece, Genesis 1, 3 to 24. This is the actual creation. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. I love in the Jewish world, days begin in darkness and move towards light. I, I just, I love that, because I think that that does something to us as well than this weird thing we have where day starts like in the middle of the night, and it's kind of in the middle of the night again. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and it was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he, the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vaults in the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Another beautiful little aside there. In every other culture, they worship the sun and the moon as gods, okay? Like you think about Egyptian culture, you think about Greek and Roman culture and so on and so forth. They were gods. And the, the, the writer of this poem is doing something very subversive and political by saying, not only are they not gods, they're created objects, I'm going to put them in day four. So we've already had some days, and then we get the things that actually mark the days. But it was this kind of like statement to all of the other cultures to say, no, 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 
these are just created objects, like our God is above and beyond those things, which is just, this whole thing, like we could do literally weeks on this poem, it's brilliant. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. I hope you pick up on this pattern. There's this pattern in this poem, God saying, and let this happen, and let that happen, and then it was good. You see, so the world wasn't created out of brokenness. The world wasn't created out of this utilitarian necessity. It was created out of joy, and it was named good. So everything God creates, the starting point for all of creation and us understanding it, ourselves included, is it is good. It's good, like the starting point. The origin of all things is good because it was created out of love. So God lovingly creates space for life to flourish. This is another, the second thing that we need to understand about God being love. And I love in Jewish mysticism, there's this phrase, this word called simsum, and it kind of means like reduction. And it's this idea that as God is creating, in order to allow other things to flourish, God has to pull back God's self in order to create a space for something else to thrive. You know, God is omnipotent, omniscient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what if part of the love of God is that he actually pulls back a little bit to let creation flourish? Now, what does that do for you when you think about your relationships? If you're made in the image of God and you're his child, and the most loving thing that you can do is actually to pull back a little bit, to create a little bit of space for something else to flourish. I think that's fascinating. So in the creation narrative, we see God saying, let, let there. So let is almost like a relinquishment. God's saying, okay, I'm going to create space. And all the first days of creation is God just creating these spaces, separating things out, opening things up. And then the next several days, he's starting to fill it in. And is that not what love is? In love, we create space. We open up. We set the table. And then we begin to fill that space. And then finally, the last little portion. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, subdue is a tricky word because a lot of times we've thought it means conquer because we perceive ourselves as separate to creation, which is why we have uh, global warming and, and Miami is sinking and all this stuff is because we think that we're different from creation. So the problem is like, how do we fix creation saying, instead of recognizing as a part of creation, as a part of nature, we are natural, 
How do we contribute to the ecosystem in which we live so that it can thrive? And that's really what, it's like, and God's still doing this, like, let this happen. Let that open. Let's open up space. He's saying, I want you guys to go and do that now for all of creation. Our very first job was to take care of creation as a loving act of worship to God. So he says, I give you every seed-bearing plant in the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruits and seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. That phrase in Hebrew is bara lehim achasot, and it means like God sat back and observed all that he had created to do. So there's this implication of like God gets this thing rolling and then he invests that creative power into his creation and says, now let's see you guys do it. Like flourish, like okay, you do what I do. You start going out there. You start creating and spreading and seeing how far we can take this thing together. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So I think this is what's so powerful. This is, this is what separates us from the rest of creation. I said we are part of creation, we're part of the created order, but we are separated because there's something when God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that makes us a little bit different from everything else. God created us with free will to love God and others. We must have a choice to not love, Okay. We must have a choice to not love. If we do not have a choice, it is not actually love. So everything else in creation, like palm trees cannot stop being palm trees and hamsters can't stop being hamsters. They just do hamster things and that's to the glory of God. We said that in like Psalm 19 and all, like the heavens declare the glory of God and the trees will clap their hands. Like all of this natural vision that we have in scripture is like, when creation does what it's supposed to do, that's worshiping and glorifying God, but God desired for us to have a little bit of an extra authority that we choose God because the rest of creation doesn't choose him. It just knows him intuitively. This is why we listen to creation because we want to learn to know God as intuitively as creation does. But God invested in us the decision that we don't have to love if we don't want to. And another way to say that is we don't have to agree with how we were designed if we don't want to. So of everything in creation, human beings are the only ones capable of being inhuman. Hamsters can't be in hamster. They can just be hamsters. They're just hamsters. But you and my, I, we can actually be inhuman. We can be subhuman when we deny who we were created to be and when we do not choose to love God, to love others, to love self. So God took a huge risk in creating us, but it was an important risk because that risk is the necessity for love. How many of you have taken a risk for love? Can I get someone to testify? Right? It's a huge risk to love, to let yourself be loved. But it's that freedom to choose that makes us like God. And that means then that there is work for us to do. There's some part that we have to play in this. And so the whole project, we have Genesis 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Now go, be fruitful, multiply, love well, let yourself be loved. Let's see this whole thing go. And then it all falls apart because there was that choice to not love that we see in Adam and Eve. And then we see just the whole spiraling out of control of humanity. You could do a whole study on like Genesis 3 through like nine um, of like 
just how bad it gets. Like one generation past Adam and Eve, jealousy, boom, murder. Like we already killed people in the second generation. And I don't take these stories literally. I think that they're like these wonderful, deeply profound, uh, essence, like truthful narratives about what it means to be a human being. But it just spirals out of control so quickly. And so the whole project then from that moment in the garden is restoration. It's about God trying to bring us home, to bring us back to him, to help us to make the choice to choose into agreement with who he says that we are and in that learning how to love. And so when we fast forward to the end of the scripture, the end of the narrative, we find the, the writings from the community that John established, John the beloved disciple. I love his gospel. I just want to go to Pax and be like, oh, I love this gospel. Oh, this is so good, Pax. Wow, I've never even seen this before, you know? Um, but John's community wrote several letters that are right at the very end of the, uh, of the scriptures uh, just before Revelation. And they're all about love. And, and one of the neat things that you can go and look at later is that the Gospel of John, it's all about belief. This is what we, how we believe. The, the writings of the, the, the letters of John is this is how we know. So belief and participation leads us into this deeper knowing. And a lot of it is about love. And this is just a couple passages. First John 3, 1 through 3, and then 4, 7 through 12. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Oh my gosh. What great love the, the, the Father has lavished on us. Like we're not, We don't have a God where we have to do a rain dance to even get him to pay attention to us. You know, we don't have to bargain with this God to convince him that we're worthy of being saved. Like, he is, he's there. He's at the core. He's just like on the edge of his seat. Like, welcome me in. You know, it's like the father in the prodigal story, right? The kid comes back after totally missing the mark. He's wandering home. He's like already like planning. How many of you, you like with your beloved when there's going to be conflict, you plan out, you're like, okay, this is, I, I, I write the narratives all the time. This is what I'm going to say. They're going to say this. I'm going to do this. And this kid comes home and he's like, father, I'm not worthy of being your son. Maybe I can be a servant. Can I have a little snack? Blah, blah, blah. And the father runs out to him. Like the father doesn't even wait to him to come to the doorstep. Like I've been in loving relationships before where I've stood on the inside of the doorstep like, as soon as you cross the threshold, I win. You know what I mean? Like, that sucks. That's not very loving, so apologies to anybody in here that I've ever loved. Um, but God doesn't do that. God runs out the doorway to find his kid. And the kid starts giving all the excuses, trying to bargain so that he can have some sort of a relationship, and the father just goes, I don't care. I don't care about any of that. I don't care. And this is even what I was saying, like, a couple weeks ago. Like, Taylor had a good conversation about this. Like, God forgives because God can forgive because he's God. Like in the story of the prodigal, God doesn't go, you can come into the household as soon as I beat this servant to hell. On your, so he's going he's to die for your sins. God just forgives. And then the God on the cross is the evidence of the God who forgives. That agape, unconditional love. That God loves us so much that he lavishes this love. He sacrifices himself for us. He empties himself. He reduces himself. He makes himself nothing so that we can come home, so that we can choose back into relationship with him and become what we were created to be the whole time. That was just the first verse. See what great love the, love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, right? Because we've chosen out as a species. 
dear friend, now that we are children of, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. What does that do to you? You say, what does that mean? I don't know. That's why it's in there. We don't know. We're children of God right now. We don't know what we're going to be because that's called faith. We just follow him wherever he leads us. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. This is the virtue bit. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Which is another wonderful way of saying we're giving ourselves over to this loving relationship with God. We're choosing in day by day. And as he invests his spirit in us and as we show up, we are transformed over time. That purification where that subhuman nature, that inhuman nature is purged out of us. I love in the Greek Orthodox Church, they have this idea that the Holy Spirit is always a fire. It's the love of God, the active love of God. And when we submit ourselves to that fire, it purifies us. It's a refining fire. And when we resist Resist the love of God, it burns us. But it's not the action of God. It is not the intention of God. It is our response to it. Okay? So God loves whom he disciplines, but when we reject it, we get burned and we get hurt. We think God is trying to hurt us, but it's more because it's our posture, not his. God is love. God cannot love. Everything that God does is a subset of love. There will never be a time in history, I'm going to I will stake my life on this, friends. There will never be a point in the story, in human history, where God goes, okay, done with love. Now it's time for judgment. Let's go. And then he just like destroys everything. Like it will never happen. It will never happen because God is love. The writers go on. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. And knows God. To know love is to know God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is atoning? It means at one atonement at one to bring us back together to do away to take sin and death itself into his body and to bury it and to be raised on the third day triumphant over the powers and the principalities so that we can come home dear friends since God so loved us we also ought to love one another I love this is this is the last like basically the last phrase in the Bible okay see if this blows your mind No one has ever seen God. You're like, what was the, there's been 65 other books where like God keeps showing up and all this stuff. What are you talking about? The conclusion is no one has ever seen God. Are you kidding me? No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God is not merely a proposition that we make. Does God exist? Yes or no? Check the box, move on. God is something we participate in. We manifest God when we love one another. And we have to pay careful attention to the character of God if we want to understand what love is because when we pay attention to the character of God, we're paying attention to what it is that we are to become. 
And so there's kind of three things that we recognize in Genesis. We see them coming up here. Number one is God is Trinity. We were designed for loving community. Your home base, your true self is a self that is in relationship to others. There is no such thing as being an independent self. We have to kill this cult of of hyper-independence that we have in our culture. And as we learn to love, we're coming home to this reality that my truest self is when I'm other-centered. And I'm other-focused because that's the way that God is as a loving community. Number two, in that idea that in God's love, he retracts to create space. We are meant to create space for others to flourish according to God's design. Another way to say it, sometimes you need to get out of your own way in order to love somebody. Another way to say it, you can be right or you can be in love. It's your choice. I've been in too many relationships where I did not create the sinsum, the space, the reduction. I wanted to be right. I wanted to be God. I didn't create the space for someone else to enter in, to flourish, to grow, and to see something happen there where we are more together than we were apart. This is how I measure relationship now. Am I closer to God or am I farther away from God? Am I more fully myself with this person in my life or am I less so? And are they more fully themselves? Or are they less so? If one of those is out of alignment, there at least needs to be a conversation. Because this is what love is for. Love is action, but it's also retraction. And finally, free will. We invest in the fact that love is a learned choice and a skill. Love is not spontaneous. You will never get to this point where you've achieved enlightenment and you no longer have to talk to your beloved Guys, you're just going to talk. You're going to talk forever. So just learn to love it. Enjoy it. The ancient Greeks said love is the process of mutual education where we celebrate the virtues in another person and we work on the things that are not virtuous. And so me loving you is me teaching you about myself and how to love me and asking you to teach to teach me about you so that I can love you well. And it's that constant conversation between lovers where we learn how to love each other better and better day by day. And the beauty is that over time, love moves from first nature, which is a conscious choice where we're learning the skills, we're learning how to cultivate love, and eventually it becomes second nature. And many of you, you know those second nature lovers. Probably like a grandparent, or like someone who's been walking with Jesus for like 50 or 60 years, you know, and they just walk into the room and it just like radiates from them. I have an acquaintance since he lives in Canada. He's kind of a Canadian Celtic monastic. He's got this big white beard and this long white hair. He is what God looks like to me. And he'd always just come up and he'd just, he'd, he'd come, whenever he'd come to Nashville, he'd just come by and go, oh, how are you, my beloved brother? And you just melt in his presence. You knew he had done the work with Jesus over like his entire life where love just radiates from him. And rather being discouraged that I haven't arrived yet at love, it's recognizing that's the destination. That's where we're headed, that we look more and more like Jesus day by day. Specifically with romantic love, I just want to say this as an aside. Did you know that compatibility is not the starting point for love, but compatibility is the achievement of love? 
What? You mean I've been look, walking around looking for a woman who also appreciates black metal and Philip Glass and like all these weird things that I like and gosh, I can't find her. She doesn't exist. Maybe I'm not built for love. But maybe actually it's the, the, the careful and generous maneuvering of differences that produces the compatibility that I'm looking for in a relationship. Poof. Romanticism loses again. But to learn the virtue of love is to reveal God in a world, a nature, a creation that is waiting to come home. As Paul writes, all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the children of God to be revealed so we can call everything home. And here in love, all virtues are bound up and they are given shape, they are defined because they tell us what God is like, specifically the God that's revealed in Jesus on the cross. So I'm going to invite you to come to the table. And as you do this, this is you participate. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love is known and it's made known among us. As we come to the table together, we are participating in the reality of God. We are literally taking into ourselves the body and blood of Christ, the greatest act of love the world has ever known, and allowing it to do something within us where it's transforming us over time. That this is, this is a covenant. This is a commitment. This is God saying, I am committing, I'm sticking with you and I'm not gonna let go until I see you totally restored, brought back to wholeness as my beloved. So I wanna invite you to stand with me. And the way we do this here is everybody's gonna like row by row, you're gonna kind of come through down these stairs on your right. You're gonna come to the table. You're gonna take one of the, the communion elements, the Eucharist. And you can just take it back to your seat. And I want you to just sit there with it for a moment and contemplate this is what love is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved himself and gave his life for us. And be sure when you leave <coughs> to take that little thing with you so then throw in the trash. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to the table row by row. And then we're going to worship the Lord. Heavenly Father, beloved Son, Spirit who is with us, our God three in one, may we be more like you day by day, that as we receive your love, as we are welcomed into this divine dance of love with you, our Trinitarian God that we would be shaped more and more to look like you, which is to say to look more fully human. And as we are more fully human, that we make the choice to love, to learn to love, to learn to reveal you to a, a hurting world waiting to come home. And so Holy Spirit, would you alight upon these elements, this cup, this bread, that it would be for us the living body of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus, as an act of love, a covenant, covenantal choice of love, 
that we would see ourselves a little bit more restored to wholeness than we were before we came. We give you permission to move in us and through us. pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.